calling. The reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 11, beginning with the doxology in verse 33, and continuing on to chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and that's on 1139. So 1139, beginning at verse 13. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him all things To him be the glory forever. Amen. A living sacrifice. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to rest, test, sorry, and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you'd like to um, keep your Bibles open at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I don't know who um, in the church decides who's going to preach on what, but um, when it fell my lot to preach on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, there was a very definite yes. These are some of the most glorious verses in the Bible. It's at a point in Romans where the Apostle Paul has reached almost like a climax. And we'll just remind ourselves together. So Romans chapter 12. And Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The verses kind of preach on themselves, don't they? I could sit down now. We've had a sermon. We've heard it from the Apostle Paul, but but I won't do that. If you look at um, our little green sheets, there we've got a, a rough outline of where we're going to go so you know where we are. And the first point is, what a glorious view. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. God's mercy is a glorious view. And Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is a kind of a tipping point, a, 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 cl- a climax in Romans. Paul stands at the very peak of this mountain of truth that he's been climbing up, taking his readers with him for the last 11 chapters. And he says, he, it's as though he turns around and says to them, just look at that view. What a glorious view of God's mercy, or God's mercies. It's in the plural. And, and as we've been climbing up the book of Romans, and those of us that have studied Romans and know Romans, Romans is this vista of the mercy of God. It is beautiful. And Paul's telling that to his readers. Just look at that glorious view. Very quickly, I'm going to remind you of that view. We had a reminder last week. We're going to have another one. Phil's outline of Romans is all S's. Okay? The first few chapters, Paul explains to us our sin. The first thing, in the first three chapters, Paul describes our utter hopelessness 
Humanity is utterly hopeless and lost in God. If Romans only contained chapters 1 to 3, it would be really depressing. Because what Paul's picture is here is not of humanity somehow under their own steam and strength getting better and better, evolving and progressing until a world of peace comes. But what Paul speaks in Romans is is just the utter depravity of humanity and its hopelessness. Romans chapter 1 to 3 is really quite a sad read. It it ends in Romans chapter 3 verse 10. There is no one righteous in in the sight of God, not even one. All have turned away. That's, that's the conclusion that Paul comes to. And in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, religious, non-religious, every single person, humanity as a whole, has, has fallen short of the glory of God. They're just not going to make the grade. And then at the end of chapter 3, we have... Salvation. So first of all in Romans, sin, and then salvation. In chapter 3 we have that glorious but. But God has come into this situation. God has sent a saviour. We see his gracious salvation in Christ Jesus. It's just as though the darkness is, is, is illuminated by God's goodness and mercy in Christ Jesus. Chapter three, chapters 3 to 8 are quite complicated and Paul dives around all over the place. But he's explaining the salvation that God has brought to us in Christ Jesus. And then Paul moves on from that and he talks about our security. So we've had sin, salvation and now security. That's chapter 8 onwards. We are secure in God's love. His mercies are not just to bring us out of this, 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 this depraved humanity and to bring us into a kingdom of light and love and joy and peace. That's mercy enough. But God, God's mercy keeps us. He keeps us. We are secure in God's love. Nothing, he said, can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor length, nor breadth, angels or demons, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. We are secure in God's love. So we're sinners, we're saved in Christ, and we are secure. And here in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have another S. Sacrifice and security and surrender in Christ. So, so Paul, no wonder, he says, in view of God's mercy, he turns back reminding them of those 11 chapters. And he says, in view of God's mercy, this is what I want you to do. He's urging them to do something. So I hope you can see with me what a glorious view. And those of us that know Christ and those of us that have come to know this mercy of God, it's, it's, an incredibly glorious view. You can't get enough of it. It gets more glorious as the years go by. And I think as our eyes are open to what God has done for us in Christ, that the view is ever greater, ever more wonderful. We, we tend to just kind of say less and just like our mouths are opened at what God has done for us in Christ. Why does God say here in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Why doesn't God say, well, in view of God's love or in view of God's grace? Because those, both those things we've seen in the first 11 chapters. Why does Paul use this word mercy? What does mercy mean, biblically speaking? Mercy means 
kindness. It's undeserved kindness of God. Grace, as we know, is undeserved favor. God has graciously lifted us out of our sin, out of our brokenness, out of our fallenness. He's graciously, we don't merit it at all, lifted us into the kingdom of God. That's what God has done for us in Christ. But mercy is the manner in which God has done it. It's like the the cream on the top of the cake. God has not only graciously done wonderful things for us in Christ, but he's done it mercifully. He's been so kind, so 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 gentle, so he's full of compassion and and pity. That's what it means. It, It means pity. God has been looked upon us with pity. And again, those of us that know Christ and have, have been brought to know Christ and walk with him, God is very kind, he's very generous, he's very compassionate to us, and we kind of rest on that. We don't take it for granted, we don't live in a wrong kind of life, because God God is not soft in any way at all, but he is kind, he is compassionate. So those of you that are feeling particularly low and down and guilty and you think, oh, God's got it in for me. Pray to God, as David the psalmist did. Lord, you are a compassionate God. You are full of compassion. Bring your prayers to a compassionate God. He loves you. He is merciful to you. And Paul is humbled by that. Paul was the chief of sinners. Paul was a murderous, hard-nosed Pharisee. And Christ had come to him. And had forgiven him his sins. Paul knew something of the mercy of God. Now, grace and mercy together make agape love. That's what God is. Grace and mercy together. Unconditional kindness, unconditional forgiveness is what makes agape love. We can be gracious as Christians, can't we? But we can be gracious and a bit cold. We can be gracious... And a bit hard, perhaps. We can be gracious and a bit prickly. But Christians should be gracious and kind to one another. Undeserved kindness. It's a, that's a good challenge, isn't it, for us this morning, to, to, to put in kindness. My, my wife often says to me, Phil, such and such a body is coming. We must be kind to them. And there is something in my still stubborn heart at times that, oh no, such and such a body is coming, they're staying for a week, oh, that's a misery. And, and it kind of shows, doesn't it? And that, that's just the way I am. But Alison is very good, she says, Phil, we must be kind to them. And just recently I've been quite rebuked about that, it fits in well with the sermon, to be kind. To be, if we can't be kind to people, then kind of we were falling quite far short. So kindness is something that God has for us, and we must let that flow through us to one another. Be kind to one another. Okay, so God God is merciful, and as we look back in Romans, we have a glorious view of God's mercy. I think, as I said before, as, as we get older, we, we see that with a greater clarity. Young Christians, that the view that Paul is describing is, is a bit murky, it's not very far one of the good things about getting older as a Christian is that things that your view gets better. Unlike, you know, physical life, when your eyesight starts to drop at about 40 years of old and it just declines from then on, our spiritual eyesight, even as outwardly we're wasting away, can just become ever clearer. Hopefully, that until we see him face to face, it'll just be like, well, we've known him already. 
in, in such a great clarity. So as you're getting older and think, oh, I'm getting so old and things are falling off and wearing out, we can see God with a greater clarity of vision. So that's something to look forward to as you're getting older. So as, as we, that's one of the good you know, reasons to become and to grow in maturity of Christ. But Paul doesn't want his readers and, and us just to stand there and to enjoy the view. Oh, the view of God's mercy is wonderful, isn't it? Right, so we're just going to get on with things now and carry on with life. Paul says no. And this is the second point. There it is on the sheet. What a glorious challenge in verses 1 and 2. Paul's saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in the light of all that I've been teaching you, in in the light of all that you've been learning in the last 11 chapters, in the light of all that God has done, and in the light of what you now are as a child of God, I'm going to urge you to do, I really want you to do something. I urge you to do something. And this word urge is quite a strong word. Paul is saying, I plead, I appeal. In the authorised version, I beseech you, brethren, I beseech you. So Paul issues a glorious challenge to his readers and to us. And it's this, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, and not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Paul is is saying, don't bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, be one. And that's, that's that's the call that Paul is giving. Don't bring a sacrifice, be a sacrifice. And don't be a dead sacrifice on the altar, be a living sacrifice. Be a sacrifice. Offer your bodies, he says, your physical bodies, or basically all that you are, offer to God. Your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, your mouths, your minds, your hearts, your souls. Offer it all in thanksgiving to God in the, because of what he has done in the light of God's mercy. Be a sacrifice. Be a living sacrifice in serving God and in serving his people. Paul calls them to absolute self-surrender. And notice there in verses 1 and 2, it's, it's a holy sacrifice. Holy means set apart for God. Set, set aside for God to use. Our sacrifice is one that, that God takes up. God uses in his service. The, the vessels in the temple, the lovely gold vessels that Solomon made so beautifully, they were set aside for the service of God. They were used for nothing else. They were God's use. And God wants us to, to set aside our lives, as it were, for him to use, for him to use to bring glory and praise to his name. And Paul is calling these people, give your bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice. And it's pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God. I'm sure you're like me, and, and as a believer, your heart's desire is, is to please God. And some of our saddest days are things when we've done things wrong and we thought, that must have grieved God. That must be displeasing to God. That thought, that action, that, that whatever it is that I've done, that harsh word with a brother or a sister or just not doing something that we should have done. And our heart's desire is to please God. And Paul tells us here that to, to give ourselves in this sacrificial devotion is pleasing to God. So what an encouragement to do it. 
And this isn't a call to the super clean Christians, those that are going to go to Bible college or whatever it is. This is a call to everyone, to all who are in Christ Jesus, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. I urge you, brothers and sisters, he says, everybody, I urge you all to live lives that are utterly devoted to the living God. What a, what a challenge for us, isn't it? To live our lives for God. And it's never too late. I often think of Moses. He was in his 80s before God wasted him out of looking after the sheep and gave him the task of leading the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And very often God uses older people. It's never too old to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Nor is it ever too young. God uses young people very often in his work. Be utterly devoted to God. The sooner, the better. And if you are not in that state, then now is a good time to give yourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, it's easy to say, but it's not so easy to do, is it? To, to, to be devoted utterly to the living God. It's, it's a bit of a, a struggle to get our bodies, to get ourselves to, to live in this devoted obedience. It just doesn't come naturally. There is something still within us, and that's our fallen nature, that is as stubborn as the day before we were born again. There's a stubbornness. Poor old Dave there was saying, would you like to come forward? When Who came forward? Not many. There's a stubbornness. Or when somebody says to you, would you like to do this or that? You say, oh, I'm not going to do that. There, we, there is a stubbornness that's still in our hearts. I, I'm sure if there's some nods going on, you recognize that. That... Um, it's a struggle. And that's another S in Romans, isn't it? Romans chapter 7. The struggle that Paul explains living out the Christian life. It's a struggle to, to bring our bodies, our lives, into, into this kind of obedience to Christ. But we don't give up. Think, oh, that's too hard. Blow that for a lark. We, we, we struggle to win. We, 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 we fight to get our bodies into shape. We make it our ambition, says Paul in another, another epistle. We make it our ambition, our goal, to please God. We fight against that, that natural fallen tendency within us, that, that tendency of the world not to conform to God's pattern. We, we fight against it. That's the fight of faith. That's the adventure of being a Christian. We go, yes, we're going to go for it. I am going to give my body wholly devoted to Christ. We don't give up at the first hurdle. We persevere. We keep on. Amen. We do. This, says Paul, is true and proper worship. This kind of living, this kind of devotion, this is what it's about. This is true and proper worship. This is pleasing to God. In another version it says, this is your reasonable service to God. This is your, it makes sense in the light of all that God has done, in the light of all that you now are as a child of God. Then it makes sense to live for him, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's the sensible thing to do. It's not sensible not to be devoted to God. There are, there are benefits there. In the light of all that God has done, in the light that we are now the children of God through Christ Jesus, we should live as obedient children. It's a glorious challenge indeed. And it, if we're not living in this fully surrendered way, and many of us are, many of us here are probably living in disobedience. And it's not a nice place to be. 
It's far better when you're walking in this, this, this walk of obedience. And you, when God comes close to you, you can look at him straight in the face. And you don't have to put your eyes down. You're not ashamed, but you can like hold his gaze in prayer. It's beautiful to be in that fellowship with Christ. Walk with God. Paul is urging his brothers and sisters here to do just that. As children of God, our daily prayer should be in full and glad surrender. I give myself to thee, thine utterly, thine only, and ever more to be. In full and glad surrender. It's a joyful thing. So we've seen the glorious view. We've seen the glorious challenge here in these verses that Paul gives to these people. And now we must respond by living a glorious life. This life is lived out in the power of God, in the power of his spirit. It's there in verse 2. A life lived in this sacrificial way is good, is pleasing, and is perfect. It's a life walking in the will of God. And that's where Christians should be walking, in the will of God. Paul's not seeking to to lead us into misery and chains. Sadly, people outside of Christ, oh, you've become a Christian, what a bore. What a misery that must be. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Oh, probably you can't do that anymore and you can't do this anymore. That must be miserable. But to become a Christian, those of you that, you, that know that, it's utterly liberating. We're saved from something that we shouldn't be to something that we should, to something that God created us to be. A, a true Christian is, is utterly liberated, liberated from sin, liberated from self, liberated from Satan too. We are free to live the life that God wants us to live. We are free to resist worldly influence. Only Christians, only those who have the spirit of God in them, are able to resist this, this, this worldly influence, this, this conformity that the world wants to mould you into its pattern. So the Christian life should be deeply enjoyable, should be immensely satisfying, and increasingly so as we mature and bear the fruit of the spirit in our lives. The fruit of the spirit is, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Who wouldn't want those things in their lives? This is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. These are great things. The world longs for those things. Peace, all the different things to get peace. Contentment, oh my goodness, the stuff you read about that you can get. And there's never any contentment. There never will be outside of Christ. You can patch it up. But true joy and contentment. Is, is in Christ. Interestingly, this, this past week, I walk, we live in Lewis, I walked into the town, it's a nice walk, 20 minutes from our house into the town. Lewis is 15, 20,000 people. You always bump into somebody that you know, which can be nice, or if you're in a hurry, not so nice. But anyway, I bumped into two people when I walked into the town this week, both Christian believers. So you get chatting, hi, how are you, the family, you go through all that palaver. And then what one of the ladies I knew was, was, was struggling. I met her husband a couple of weeks ago, and I knew that things weren't easy. Not with the family, the family was fine, but, but life in general. And we were talking, and I was just sharing things with her and she was saying yeah life is difficult but isn't God good and then and then she went on for about 10 minutes telling me about the mercy and she used that word the mercy and the goodness of God in all kinds of circumstances I could have, I could have warmed my hands on her it was it, and I went away thinking oh I feel quite really blessed 
by just hearing her and speak of the mercies and the goodness of God in the midst of, of difficulties. And, you know, she's got young children. It's not easy, is it? When you go through that, oh, it's hard work. And then, right, back home now, ten minutes along the road, another lady came along. Hi, Phil. Hi, how are you? Fine. So on. An older lady this time. We were just talking about the goodness of God again, as you do. And, and she just said to me, Phil, I just, I have never been so content as I am now. So I was walking into town the other day and this, this feeling of deep contentment came over me. I said, it just lasted for a short while, but it was just, I'm just so fortunate, so blessed to have this contentment. And she said these very things. How can people live without a faith? How can they live without the faith? And she again, you could, it was lovely. And I went home and thought, oh, this is so good. And we'll provide a good sermon illustration and very apt too. These are people who are saying that to live with Christ, there are benefits. The great Jonathan Edwards from centuries ago, that great preacher in America, he said one, one of the main reasons for the gospel and of preaching the gospel to people is that the life in Christ is so good. Why wouldn't they want it? That it's such a good life. Come and be a Christian. Come and be a Christian for that very reason. It is so good. Yes, it's difficult. There's another S in Romans, chapter 7, the struggle. Yes, it's difficult. We're going against the flow very often. That's not easy. But the struggle is worth it. Yes, the path is narrow and steep. Yes, there are battles to fight, some of which we'll lose. And yes, there are discouragements, there are failures, there are defeats, and there are sorrows. And some of those sorrows are very, very deep indeed. But God's grace is always sufficient, and his mercy is always there, even in the depths of those sorrows. God's will and purpose is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. And as we find and discover and live out his will, Phil, you've sold it to me. How can, how can I bring this? How can I do it? How can we be made to know this will of God that is so good? It's done by the renewing of our minds. It's all in these verses. It's done by the renewing of our minds. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That word transformed is transfigured. It's the same word when, when Jesus was transfigured in the front of his disciples. You remember that uh, in the Gospels when Jesus takes his disciples up to the mountain. It's just James, isn't it, and his brother John and Peter. And they take it up the mountain to the Lord and they thought, what's going to happen now? And then all of a sudden, Jesus begins to glow. And in his face, it says, and his clothes became as bright as the noonday sun. And in Israel, the noonday sun is so bright, you have to like squint your eyes. That's how Jesus became. And they thought, what's happening now? You can imagine them, can't you? There's the three disciples. And then, not only that, but there was Moses and then Elijah standing talking with Jesus. I often think, they must have think, what is going on? And then, the cloud envelops them and the voice of God speaks, this is my, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Those disciples. Jesus was transfigured. It means being, being made completely different. And Paul says here, be transfigured by the renewal of your mind. Become completely different. And both those words are the old present continuous. Be being transformed. Be being changed. Be being renewed in your mind. It's this ongoing transformation. It, this, there is a degree of, of one-offness as we make our, our commitment to Christ, but it's an ongoing work of God. 
Are you aware of this transformation? Are you aware that your minds are being changed by the spirit within? God is changing us from within. When I first became a Christian, that's something that I was aware of. At first, I think, oh, I'm not quite sure about that. Oh, that's a bit strange or whatever it might be. And then bit by bit, I thought, well, actually. And then in the end, I thought, yeah, it kind of makes sense. And then I thought, do you know what? I want some of that. That My mind was being changed. And maybe some of you, maybe some of you are quite antagonistic towards the Christian faith. And then you thought, well, maybe maybe it doesn't sound so bad after all. And then then God is so work within you that your mind is being renewed that I want that and I really, really want that and I want that more than anything. That's the way that God works in salvation. He never, ever shoves anybody into a corner and beats them into, into surrendering their lives to Christ. He woos us. He appeals to us. That's how God works. Maybe God is working your heart and life at the moment, doing just that. Maybe you're a million miles away and you think that will never, ever happen to me. Don't you believe it? God is in the work of, of renewing minds, changing minds. Trust him to do that. Our minds are renewed, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of character. That's a good job, isn't it, really? Some of our characters need changing and renewing, but God does do that. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. There is so much to look forward to. Christianity, true Christianity, is not a reformation of behavior. The world can do that. The world can reform behavior in various other ways. True Christianity is a transformation, a transfiguration of our character. How then is our mind renewed? It's renewed by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God working together. I don't have the time to explain that, but I could get scripture verses to show you that it's the Spirit of God and the Word of God together are used to transform our mind. It's very reasonable. It's very, it, it, our minds are used. We're not mindless as Christians. We're very thinking people. And what we do and the way we do it should always be thoroughly reasonable, thought out. But it's the work of God. And Paul goes on to teach them in Romans. This is, this is the chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, look at the view, and now this is how I want you to live. Paul then teaches them how to live. So come along in the next few weeks and listen to this teaching of how does God want me to live? He'll tell you. It teaches how to live in society, how to live in, in our families and so on. It's really good practical teaching. So thank God for the teachers in, in, in this church. We are a, a church that teaches the Bible. Thank God for the teachers. The teaching here is good. Maybe it's dropped a bit today, I don't know. But um, thank God for the teachers here. Pray for them. Pray that God would reveal truth to them, that they can reveal it to us. Listen to what they say, and then with God's help, put it into practice. Especially that merciful, be kind to one another. That would help, Phil, no end, I'm sure, to have this kindness and this love within the fellowship here at BH. So think it, then do it. So just to sum up, we've, we've seen a glorious view of God's mercies. We've had a glorious challenge to surrender ourselves to the living God, and we sense what a glorious life the Christian life really is. So, to conclude, I can't do better than to just read those two verses again. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing 
to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. Brothers and sisters, at the close of the service, there will be a prayer team down here at the front. If God has been speaking to you, if you want to make that, that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer yourself to him, then don't be shy. Don't let, if something within you says, I really want to do that, then don't let your stubborn heart stop you from coming to pray with somebody. Or speak to Phil or speak to Dave or myself at the end of the service and we will do all that we can to help you. Amen.